everybody. I got blisters on my bum. That's perfect intro. Welcome, welcome everybody. Hello, welcome to Illuminati Podcast, episode two oh nine. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Mike Martin. Today, and you know what? Oh boy. Well, you know what? Today we're joined by a couple that you probably do know, uh, the Fry and Lowry of L.A., Alex and Jesse. Hey, we. Fi- I finally know. I finally know both of these guys. I've been re. I've been rewatching House recently, and that show is hilarious. I love season one of House so far. It's so early two thousands. That, that girl doctor never has her coat buttoned up, ever. She has this traumatic past where she married a dying cancer patient that she knew was dying. It's very, very... and Oh, anytime they have to go rob somebody, they, may, they tell the black guy to go do it. It's fucking wild. It's, it's, a, it's a fantastic show. I'll tell you this. Me and Jesse shared a plane with Hugh Laurie uh, just recently. It was crazy. Every single person on the plane was like, oh my god, it's Hugh Laurie. But, like, everyone also was really respectful. Like, no one went to go bug him. And that's good. In the most genuinely sweet way, he was sitting with, I assume, his wife. It was definitely his wife. In, like, little chairs, knitting and stuff. It was beautiful. They were in, in like, the first class so they could, like, sit across from each other at, like, little bench seats. And they were, like, chatting and knitting with, like, their glasses on on the plane. Everybody was like, Sir Laurie. Like, nobody, nobody was like, Pictures! Ah!" They were all just like, we're, like, really big fans. Even the flight attendants. It was just a, it was a good vibe. Oh, that's awesome. I want that's that's a fantastic sight to see house knitting. <laughs> I don't know which one's Fry and which one's Lori. That's actually a great question. Yeah, who who are you of the two? I don't know who Fry is. Stephen Fry? You don't know who that is? Oh, maybe I do know. That name is familiar. 100% do. There's like no way you don't know who he is if you saw a picture of him. Let's take a look. He's the host of QI for many years. This man is wasting his time to acknowledge that he knows a man. Gamer reference. He's the he's the oh, narrator. Oh yeah, I know this man. Yeah, yeah, I know that face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen him on many a TV show. The narrator of a million things. Yeah. What broke them up? Just success. I think just age, time. Sure, sure. The sands of time. Success, age, time. They, they both must be. They, they must both be knights. Uh, like by now like they got the sir action going on oh dean's here dean are they knights do you know they must both be no surely he's gonna look it up in the meantime you can ensure we don't split up by going to patreon what dot com you want to make sure we don't split up by going to patreon.com slash humanity pod is that what you're saying somebody there were a couple people who genuinely thought me and jesse was like we're like angry at each other over the uap stuff like guys so you know money will keep us together guys let this is this is something i've been talking about a lot (laughs) listen to me i want to i want to get real about something really quick before we go into whatever the heck i don't I, i genuinely don't know what this episode's about you listening you already read the title i don't know what it is we trust each other on this show we're like actual friends we've known each other for years we trust each other to like say things that will make each other mad because we know as people that we won't be like mad at each other in a way that's like beyond the pale. Like we won't ever go like across that line. And I think like the thing about online arguments that I think people conflate with in in person arguments with people that you trust is that the emotions and venom that are like slinging around online are real. Uh, people are just awful to each other online. There was a study that came out today that was like, people, it's not about defending your beliefs. It's not about anything like that. It's just getting a dopamine rush from the cruelty. Yep. So think twice. Yeah, we love each other, you fucks. And aliens are real. Jesse, I'm, you will be eating a shit pie sandwich one day, and I will be here. No, n- I, no I won't. Yes, you will. Nobody's going to eat any poo-poo sandwiches. You will. I'm, I'm willing to take that bet that... In our lifetime, we will still not see aliens. I'm going to take that bet with you. I will. I'll, I'll take that bet 100%. Do we want a timeline? 
like by a certain our age. Lives. Or, our okay. lives. Whoever dies first. I have first. to still be around. If I'm dead, it doesn't count. If I'm killed by aliens before they announce themselves and then the next day they show up, it doesn't count. I still win. First of all, that would send me into the biggest like spiral of all time, knowing that you were killed by aliens while you didn't believe and nobody has evidence <laughs> of it. And now I'm going to become Alex Jones somehow is that that's going to lead me down that path. As I'm dying, I'd be like, I don't believe it. And that'd be it. That's, that's the-, <laughs> the gray is just standing over you. Sell this protein powder to the people. <laughs> Get it out to them. Help their brains be strong. <laughs> I don't believe it. <sighs> Guys, what can't you get on Patreon? That's the real question. Anything from ad-free episodes to a mini-sode after every one of these. Did you know that I have been continuing the story of the Green Stone on the mini-sodes for many, many weeks now? And that it's 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 getting to its next big act. Like, it's getting to, like, if this was Marvel, which it is not, it's all true. But if it was Marvel, it was like a Marvel Cinematic Universe type thing, we'd be in, like, phase two or three right now. Oh my god. Of of our of our overall, I guess, five phase journey. By the time phase five's done, they're gonna be over superheroes, right? Right. Anyway, there's gonna be art that you can get. There's gonna be pre-sale merch that you can get. There's a show called Rotten Popcorn that may turn into us showing Mathis the entire series of X-Files. Stay tuned. Who knows? Everybody's loving the X-Files. Uh Mathis, I wanna be real. We I talked about this yesterday with Jesse and Davis. Mathis actually used a molder gif. Uh, in context with the appropriate knowledge of who Fox Mulder was the other day while talking about aliens. Specifically. Yeah, felt like a little angel grew his wings. Yeah. <laughs> it's perfect. Jesse driving me crazy, as always. Yeah, we're, we're changing lives Not over my here. fault you have unsustan- unsubstantiated claims. <laughs> I gave you the government papers. You said this you is, didn't This is what happens them? every time, guys, and it's because yeah, we love each other. It. That we're, it was politically motivated. It's just us loving each other. You know what I mean? That's what this is all. This, that's what this whole thing is. Mathis <laughs> is, is tilted back in his chair right now with his eyes closed because he's happy and he's in love. <laughs> he's, so he's, happy. He's, he's surrounded by family. And that's, that's what's important. At patreon.com slash pod. Your real family, the one that loves you, for, forsake those you live with. Come to patreon.com slash Pod. We are your family now. We? I don't, no, I don't make that claim. We are your family? Don't do that to people. We are your family now. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's, it's welcoming. No, no. Patreon.com slash Pod. We are your family now. Unless we're a found family like Fast and Furious, in which case we must commit crimes together. It's all about family. Exactly. Yeah. Was that not perfect? That, you sounded Diesel? just like Dominic Toretto, yeah. Dominic Toretto. Dominic he, Toretto. Oh Dominic Toretto. I saw the only Robo Fast and the Furious movie I have seen is the second one. Tight. What Bridge. the shit is the matter with you? What do you mean the second it one? It sucks. It's yeah. funny because... Me and like, my sister rented it when it came out to Blockbuster nearby. And we watched. You it never like, saw the first one. None of them are. None of them are essential viewing. Like, like it's it's delightful popcorn fun. And there's not one masterpiece among them. But somehow no, you still. If you're gonna watch the second one, yeah. the first one is essential yeah. viewing, dude. But somehow, because yeah, yeah, Dom, Dom wasn't in the second one until the very I end. Know. I'm aware. <laughs> there's just something even worse about it being that weird oddball one where they weren't sure that it was a hit yet. Uh, I guess, yeah. I also saw, I told Dean, because we were talking about something beforehand about movies, and I saw, oh, we were talking about uh, Across the Spider-Verse and, like, the cool shit they did with animation, and he was saying, has anybody else ever done that before? And the only thing I could think of was the incredible Mr. Limpet. Yeah, that's great. When he became a fish. I love, I love the incredible Mr. Limpet. I've seen that movie multiple times. 
did you steal one movie from a very old man's house? Is that what happened? No, my great grandmother had a cabinet of VHSs. Your great grandmother? Yeah, <laughs> she's dead now. R.I.P. Oh well, hey, rip. But hey, that's a great taste in movies, right there. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, it was that. Any of the weird older movies I saw, that was from where I saw them. Like my her little wooden cabinet of VHSs. She had 1999 Godzilla in there. What? I've seen that many Matthew times? Matthew Broderick. I saw that in the theaters though. Yeah. All right. I saw that in the theaters first. All right. And I think actually that's the only Godzilla movie I've seen because I haven't even seen the new one. This is like making a murderer, you guys. This is crazy. <laughs> it really, all of it slowly, the pieces, the longer it's, I do this, the pieces fall into place. Yeah. And it just makes more and more sense. <laughs> you think you feel like it makes sense. And then the more you zoom out, the more you realize there's just more to come. Big fan of the Star Wars universe. Only movie I've seen is Rogue One. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not true i have seen all of them actually i actually really like this the star trek universe i prefer it uh the only movie i've seen is star trek 4 the, <laughs> the best oh, wait, one what is the time travel one the the whale one yeah yeah that's the only one i've, I've seen. only seen i'm trying to think if there's any other movies i saw like the like a middle one of and i can't really think kelly's of only saw that she's seen is saw 2 which is like pretty much the same exact situation thank you that is correct for me i was saw 2 until only recently i saw saw one like a few months back. That's exact. Saw 2 is absolutely the Tokyo Drift of the Saw franchise. Is it? Absolutely. Like, uh, in my opinion, absolutely. Saw 1 is, like, actually a pretty good movie. And then the third movie, they're like, oh, these make money. Let's, like, put some effort into these. Uh, but the second <laughs> one is, like, a crazy movie that doesn't make any sense. The Purge. I've only seen the, the last one. That's all right. There's, you know, it, it's not like there's, like, a bunch of great purges, right? Yeah, I mean, that's fair, right? That's what I say. You know what? Today, today's more fun than that, though, boys. The, day, the day's more fun than all of those things, though there's a nice little segue via movie. Uh, we've done some aliens. We've done some true crime. We haven't visited the realm of ghostly paranormal in quite some time. That is true. And one of the topics I've been wanting to cover for since the show's inception is a little case that actually took place out in England known as the Enfield Poltergeist. Oh, man, this is a very famous case. It is a very famous case. In fact, The Conjuring 2 was based on that case. Uh, what do you know of, of the Enfield Poltergeist then, Alex? I'm curious what your understanding of it is. I don't know that much about it, actually. I just know that it's like a very famous case that like, if you buy a book on like ghosts around the world, it's going to be in there. Uh, I've heard the name a bunch of times, and I believe there's like a movie or two about it that are like, uh, not, not like The Conjuring, but like documentaries and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, one of the big things people think uh, when they think of Enfield Poltergeist is the Warrens, which we will um, kind of pals. talk about in detail in the second episode in part two. What was that, Alex? I said our old pals, the Warrens. Yeah, I was about to say, oh, the Warrens. Oh, the Warrens. They started the show with us, right alongside us. They did. Amityville Horror right next to us. And here we are still uh, checking out uh, cases that they claim they were heavily involved in that they may not have been. Patreon.com slash podcast. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. In the cool, dappled shade of an average British home, the normality, their normality, was about to shatter. The address of 284 Green Street in Enfield, London, a rather ordinary council, of ho uh, council house in a quiet suburb where you could hear, imagine yourself putting yourself there, walking the streets, you can hear the children's laughter, in the playful, sunny, well, it's England, it's cloudy streets with a distant hum of city life not too far away. And in the late summer of 1977, an eerie silence settled on one house in particular. 
Something was lurking in the corners, a chilling presence that would turn the lives of the Hodgson family upside down and mark this address as a notorious spot in the annals of supernatural history. This is the tale of the Enfield Poltergeist, a story that some of you might think you know due to the story being used as inspiration for the sequel to The Conjuring, The Conjuring 2. While that story focuses on the involvement of the Warrens, it's entirely fabricated, a total lie, and their involvement with the Enfield Poltergeist will be addressed in the second episode. But just to say, the Enfields, I mean, the Warrens rather, were not really involved in this case, minus like a couple of hours when they showed up. But their story, they say, they tell, is one of entirely like them solving the case, which is another feather in the cap of them being nothing but a bunch of con artists. Oh, yo, I think this is the one. There's some. Do you remember? Do you remember when I did that, that big long one that was like a bunch of different uh, things in one? Yes, we I think we did tap tap on this one for a little bit. Well, what I tapped on was there's a show on BBC that was called Ghost Watch. Mm, yes. That was like a fake documentary mm-hmm. about this. And it like was like one of those kind of like the War of the Worlds type situations. I remember yeah, this. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. I think it's like kind of based on this haunting. I think this was like the hot haunting at the time that it was like kind of pretending to be like. Yeah. This haunting was very, very hauntings. <laughs> Nukes top five. Top five ghosts. Yeah. So while the conjuring and, and, and the Warrens tell you a different tale, it's not the truth at all. And before we dive into the truth, a big shout out to uh, our main sources for this episode, specifically the book, The House is Haunted, the amazing inside story of the Enfield Poltergeist by Guy Lyon and uh, by Guy Lyon Playfair, who was one of the lead and primary investigators on the case, as well as the book, The Poltergeist Prince of London, the remarkable true story of the Battersea Poltergeist by Vince O'Neill. Uh, this is not directly about the Enfield Poltergeist, but it does delve into other cases that Maurice Gross who was the prime lead investigator on this case, also did. And how he got involved into this uh, story is uh, fascinating in and of itself. And I will say another one for anybody else who wants to read, uh, one that I only got to read a little bit of, is just a a book by Will Storr called Will Storr versus the Supernatural, One Man's Search for the Truth About Ghosts. This dude is, it's like the skeptical look on all of it all. It's the, which is like very necessary for, for all of this. So back to the actual story at, at, uh, at play here. Peggy Hudson, or Hodgson rather, a single mother of four, was the first to sense the strangeness in her home that would soon haunt her for over a year, 18 months to be exact. Her family consisted of Margaret, 13, Janet, 11, Johnny, 10, and Billy, 7. All seemed normal from the outside, uh, living their normal lives until the evening of August 30th, 1977. As Peggy began to tuck her children into bed that night, a shiver ran down her spine, but she brushed it off as the nip of an early autumn and retired to her room to go to bed. But that night, Janet and Johnny complained of a disturbance within their room, a knocking sound that echoed around the room and a chest of drawers shuffling on its own accord, just all moving in and out, in and out. Dismissing its childhood fantasies, though, their mother Peggy urged them to just get back to bed. However, when she, too, witnessed the cabinet slide across the carpeted floor, the the blood drained from her face, and unable to comprehend the bewildering phenomenon, she immediately reached out to their neighbors, the Nottinghams, for help. That's so crazy. just that night, shit just popped off out of nowhere. There wasn't really a slow buildup. It was just Mm -hmm. knocking, 
drawers opening and a fucking cabinet just slid. Vic and Peggy Nottingham, equally puzzled, failed to find a logical explanation for what she had described. And in desperation, they decided to, to contact the local police. WPC Carolyn Heaps arrived at the scene, skeptical but ready to investigate, and she was expecting a prank. But what she witnessed that night was a chair inexplicably lurching forward without any human touch. Called to the Hodgson home on the night of August 31st, 1977, Heaps was initially skeptical. Reports of strange noises and moving furniture from a distressed mother and her children could easily be dismissed as a prank or the result of an overactive imagination. However, her skepticism was going to be wholly challenged in an unexpected way. Upon her arrival, Heaps, along with another officer, conducted a thorough search of the Hodgson house. As they moved room to room, they noticed nothing out of the ordinary. But soon, they too became witnesses to the inexplicable events that had caused the Hodgsons to call out in such distress. WPC Heaps reported seeing a chair wobble and slide seemingly on its own. It moved nearly four feet across the floor, despite there being no one close enough to have pushed it or kicked it. And in her written report, Heaps stated that, quote, a large armchair, unassisted, four feet across the floor, or unassisted moved four feet across the floor. The officer, trained to approach situations rationally and objectively, should, could not find or identify any reason for the movement. So we have, right out the gate, we are settled with a police report that corroborates slightly on that. Now, that's not to say that one could not still say this may be a prank. While there was no one around the chair, it is always possible. You have the old fishing line uh, trick uh, that, you know, in the dark or in a dimly lit room, it gets yanked four feet across the floor. But one has to imagine she checked out the chair afterwards, or at least you would hope that's what she did, uh, and wasn't able to find such a thing. But we don't know if she did that. We only have her written report. Like, what can you measure? What could you possibly measure? Yeah. Yeah, you just feel around, I guess. Like, I'm, I'm trying to think of, uh, I've, I genuinely try to think of other ways it could move. A gust of wind, unless it's like a raging storm, I can't imagine would. Maybe like a big ass truck goes by and you. Maybe. Vibrate, you know, like your the building vibrates. Earthquake and goes, maybe, but I feel like they would have felt that. Yeah, this has been, there's a video that's been making the rounds the last couple of days of a kind of old timey looking tricycle in a kid's room. That's just moving by itself. Ugh. And it's one of those things where I'm looking at it, trying, you know, I don't, I'm over here like, that's eh, not a ghost, but I'm trying to figure out what's moving it. And I honestly can't figure it out because it like turns and so I'm like, unless they got doodads and gizmos in there, I don't, it's so yeah, I don't know how you figure it out yeah mathematically it doesn't and nowadays yeah, you could be like do. maybe it's visual effects right maybe somebody just having a good time maybe they painted somebody out that was sitting on the tricycle but this is 1977 yeah and there's no way for her to be like oh, that was cg i was I, she witnessed it at least so she know, claims right and given that she couldn't explain the movement as the result of trickery or natural causes heaps testimony added a later a layer of credibility to the hodgson's claims in the eyes of many However, her experience and subsequent report didn't provide any solutions or relief for the family at all. The police department eventually determined that since there were no signs of physical harm or criminal activity, the case was kind of beyond their jurisdiction. I mean, as a cop, you're a cop, all right? You're a cop in New York City in 1977, Jesse and Alex. You get a call that there's a ghost haunting. You go, you see a chair get whipped across. You try everything you can to explain it. Now what? Is it your job? Do you still try to help them? Or do you just like, well, best of luck, lady? Uh, yeah, I mean, like, that's it. Like, 
Who's going to say it's maybe it is a ghost? I like to think that you're smoking a 1977 cigarette hand rolled. You've got the dangling metal chains, a pistol, six shooter at the ready. I just look like Columbo. <laughs> I come in like Columbo. Man, he takes a very he takes like a deep a interest in your hobby. Not here? Yeah. yeah. He's like, ah, I'd yeah. ask the ghost questions. He's like, is that is that paper mache, man? Oh, my my wife loves paper mache. <laughs> yeah. so much. I don't like the smell of it myself. was a mighty strong but, uh, breeze here in New York yesterday, ma'am. Oh, Carolyn Heaps, uh, her encounter with this inexplicable event remains one of the still notable early accounts of the haunting and one that people typically point to as evidence of something going on, largely due to her role as what really was perceived as an unbiased and professional observer. Now, it's also not clear if Heaps was a personal believer in the paranormal, which is something that could lean her one way or another, uh, but we are taking her at you know, we're giving her the benefit of the doubt here. We're assuming she's seeing what she's saying she's seeing, and she did everything she could as a police officer to try and help. And the days that followed only seemed to amplify the chilling occurrences, which, as we've spoken about in other episodes, tends to happen with poltergeist activity. Toys and objects took flight, inexplicably thrown in random directions. Knocking sounds echoed through the home like an unseen intruder's footfalls, keeping them up late at night. And then... Then the children began to speak in voices that were not of their own. Voices that seemed to belong to an elderly man who spoke of his death in that very house. Voice of Dom DeLuise doing his Pizza the Hut impression from Spaceballs. <laughs> yeah, I got that one. This was only the beginning of what would become one of the most documented cases of poltergeist activity. One that has not only audio recording, but photographs as well. A chilling tale of family under siege by an invisible foe. And as the phenomena intensified. The Hodgson family could not have known that they were at the precipice of an ordeal that would not only test their courage, but shatter their skepticism and forever imprint their address on the map of the unexplainable. And I want you to know right now, the main focus of this haunting was a girl, Janet, 11 years old, who is still very much alive today and has given interviews semi-recently. And that woman looks, does not, she hates talking about it. She looks like she's seen some shit. Uh, if you want to look up Janet Hodgson, you can see interviews with her or throughout her life. This fucked her up for her whole life. This was not something she made money on. She just... Interesting. It fucked her up. It really, truly did. And in that, we can say the Enfield poltergeist is now fully awoken. It wouldn't be long between, before the name Maurice Gross echoed in the eerie silence of the Hodgson household, however. He was a seasoned investigator with none other than... The Society for Psychical Research, SPR. Hey! Uh, you ever heard of that? Have you ever heard of that like Society of Psychical Research before? No. No? I'm, I don't know if they're still around today, to be honest with you. I think they I are. know a similar group uh, that has a, uh, like a really old-style Victorian headquarters that got kind of messed up. Yeah, what's that? Mm, I, I, yeah, well, yeah, could we get some more details about that? Uh, uh, there's a couple episodes back you could check out. Don't worry about it. Oh, okay. Huh. Vague. I don't really remember any of that. Weird. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, I know. Um, they, they all blur together after a while. Actually, when, when this, the, uh, the SPR reached out and were informed Peggy that they were coming, she fainted, apparently, uh, because she thought that it was a group of, like, um, not, not psychics, uh, like therapists uh, that dealt with psych, uh, like the, the mind, because previously one of her children had been sent away. Like she thought they were like psychologists. Yeah, psychologists that they had sent. They had, they had recommended sending one of her children away because they were going through some shit, which is not really the focus of the topic. And she didn't want to do that again. And she thought that that was what was going to happen. So you know, she, when she heard that name, she apparently fainted. The Society of Psychical Re for Psychical Research 
was founded in London in 1882, which I think is the basis of that game for the PS4 that came out. Uh, the Order, 1882, is it 1887, 6? Or, or 1886, yeah. That like five hour long, like beautiful game, yeah. Yes, yeah. It's one of the oldest organizations dedicated to the study of paranormal phenomena, and it has conducted and published research on a variety of subjects, including telepathy, apparitions, hauntings, and poltergeists. The SBR aims to approach these phenomena from a scientific and scholarly perspective, maintaining an open mind while also seeking natural explanations for the experiences reported. Uh, and for those of you who are listening and go, hey, hang on, hauntings, apparitions, and poltergeists are all the same thing. They're not. If you don't know that, you haven't, been, you haven't listened to the, the podcast enough. They're all very different supernatural things. Go back, re-listen to the episodes, do your homework. I'm disappointed Learn the in lore, you. suckers. Patreon.com slash IlluminatiPod. Ad-free. Maurice Gross was a successful inventor in the field of miniaturizing heating elements and had a personal tragedy in his life that would lead him to join the SPR. In 1976, his daughter died in a motorcycle accident. Shattered by his loss, he began to explore the possibility of life after death and became eventually, uh, which eventually led him to becoming a member of the SPR. This personal experience likely made him particularly receptive to investigating claims of supernatural occurrences, and is also very important to note moving in, because there's no way to spin that there might be a little bias behind some of what he might feel to be true, to hope that his daughter may have a life after. Most notably, however, his daughter's name was the same as the girl who would end up being the focus of the haunting. Janet. Just like that movie with Batman and Superman. Martha, murder on my name, you know. Is that, was that, who was that? That's the climax of the film when they're like, How do you know that name, Mathers? I didn't see Have it. Have you guys not seen that movie? Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Maurice Gross's involvement with the Enfield Pol Poltergeist began very shortly after the strange occurrences started in late August 1977. Hearing about the alleged poltergeist activity from a news report, Gross, as a new, as a member, rather a semi-new member of the of the Society for Psychical Research, quickly offered his hand to help. The same day, he visited the Hodgson family at their Green Street home to commence his first of a long series of investigations that would find him with this family for well over a year. Mm. And upon his arrival, the nature of the case immediately began to intrigue Gross. The reported phenomena included moving furniture, strange knocking sounds, and even thrown objects. Moreover, these were not isolated incidents, but were occur occurring with alarming regularity. Gross found the testimony of the Hodgson family, especially the two girls, Janet and Margaret, to be convincing. His early days of the house were marked by personally witnessing numerous unexplained events. Objects such as Lego bricks and marbles were thrown around, often becoming hot to the touch afterwards, which is interesting, as that doesn't always happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, wait, what does that mean, though? I've heard of it before, like, in yeah, other hauntings, like, it's like transfer of energy leaves you warm, something mm, like that, right? Something along those lines. Ah, uh, okay, well, but I thought ghosts are supposed to make you cold. They can change the temperature because they take the energy out of the air, and they lower the temperature of the... This is not a ghost. This is a poltergeist, which isn't really attached... No, no, don't... But I mean, like the concept of, but I, I think I understand the idea of energy transference. That it's exchange. It's exchange proposed. of energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you can. There's also stories of people getting smacked by ghosts and here and like yeah. they don't they don't feel it happening, but they feel that weird leftover burn, and then you look at them and you can see the red mark of where the yeah, hand is. Yeah, it would is. be. It's the kind of idea of the reason why the air gets cold is because the ghost is using the energy of the room, like 
They, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, sucks it up. Yeah. Exchange of energy. I get, I get the lore. Yeah. Who's, who's got that kinetic power? Oh, God. The X-Men. He's got the car. Oh, uh, Guile, his you know, name that's is Street Fighter. No, his name is... Um, the, he's... he's uh, oh. Oh, God. <laughs> Kevin Bacon. What? It's Kevin Bacon. Okay. It is. It's Kevin Bacon, but I can't remember what his name is right now because I'm on the spot and I just forgot. It's the head of the, it's the, head of the Hellfire Club. Fuck. Sebastian Shaw, I'm there. We got there. There you go. Done. Perfect. I opened I'll up Google. To, I, I opened up Google to search it, and I thought, "What am I going to search for?" Sebastian Shaw. He's French. He's like, or he's like, uh, he's very throws cards, has a staff. Oh, Gambit. Gambit. Thank you. We're in there. Oof. There we got it. There. We got there. We're in there. Gambit's like ghosts. He's got the same. That's the guy you were thinking of, Gambit. Yeah. He I thought you were energy? talking about Sebastian Shaw. I mean, I'm sorry. You know what? Winter Soldier. Aren't we? No, that's Sebastian Stan. That's a real guy. Oh, sorry, Sebastian. <laughs> Just, a, he said it with such earnestness, and his face—he was like it wasn't for a goof. He said it, oh. and he meant it. And I'm just <laughs> in awe. I just—you gotta respect. Is his, there a part um, of you that wishes you were me because you there's so much to experience still? Honest to yeah, God, 100%. sometimes, yeah, a hundred percent of the time. Uh, I wish job. I wish I was you all of the time. <laughs> uh, only after like you're 35. It gets good. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll wait. I'm almost there. His early days at the house were marked by personally witnessing numerous unexplained events, like the Lego bricks and all that stuff. He observed furniture, particularly chairs, moving seemingly on their own. The phenomena seemed to intensify in specific situations, particularly when the girls were present and during the night hours. And we did talk about this, too. I believe it was during the Borley Rectory episode. We were talking about poltergeist activity, particularly tends to happen during, like, pubescent prepubescent kids who are like turning into teenagers yeah some people were saying it's like unconscious like like yes. venting of energy through like some sort of yeah, uh, I, I don't Alex, know i'm proud of you i'm proud of you for knowing that i read all the shit i'm a i'm a fan i'm a fan of the lore dead on correct that like there's might be something with just like the energy they're giving off the the hormones and whatnot uh because technically typically when you're looking at poltergeist activity there's like this and it's almost always a girl too something about that Time of the month showing up. The, the poltergeists are like, bing, bang, boom, we're here. That's probably like ingrained cultural sexism, let's be real, though. I was about to say, that doesn't yeah. sound oh, sure. like it's real. <laughs> that sounds like something someone said. You know what I'm saying? Because, like, periods are mysterious, bro. Like how, <laughs> like, some of the Bigfoots are like, and that's why girls don't go outside of the village and mind well, their own business. there's that one Bigfoot who's getting his dick sucked by a woman who that's, married him and is growing Oh, like you mean weed. the not true story? That's that's a specific Bigfoot. You know what I mean? That's like one guy. You mean the very not true story of that not woman, all big just feet. like he, he's the guy that wears that tee that says like you laugh at me because I'm different. I laugh at you he's because like you're all the same. Yeah, no, he's like the daywalker. He's a small foot. He's he's got one foot in both worlds, and it's the same foot because it's a big foot. <laughs> <laughs> he's got one foot in both worlds. Harry and the Hendersons too. And it's the same foot. Chiluminati, the movie. Harry and the Hendersons too. <laughs> I got, that's a, I have seen Harry. That's a good movie. I like Harry and the Hendersons. It's a good. You've one. seen that? That's the one. I've seen it. What? I need to just sit down with you. When he says, and- when he says, what movies he hasn't seen? I look like Harry and the Hendersons. <laughs> <laughs> that's a fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> No one can see it. But if you watch the movie, you know exactly what that scene is. You really do. There's <laughs> the old yellow scene. You know the scene. <laughs> and when they try to say goodbye to him, make him leave, and he won't. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's like, Arr! he hits him, and he's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what I thought a we were friends, film. John Lithgow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're here. We're here. I don't know how we got here, but we're here. We gotta, we gotta veer back Ooh, to no. the ghost, path. ghost, ghost, ghost. I like the ghosts because there's not like murder that I'm laughing over, so it feels good. Yeah, yeah. See, I have that gallows humor, man. Now you gotta, you gotta make fun of that shit. It was during these initial investigations that Gross also became aware of the strange disembodied voices, particularly one that seemed to emanate from Janet. And it was this raspy male voice claiming to be the spirit of a deceased man by the name of Bill Winkins or Wilkins. I wish it was Winkins. Bill Wilkins. <laughs> Bill Winkins. <laughs> That's nobody. Somebody else. Bill Some Wilkins other... is like already quite. He sounds like a scary motherfucker's name. That guy has a knife. Bill Wilkins. He sits in the back of the bar where you can't see him. Yeah. This voice both puzzled and alarmed Gross. And this spirit claimed, uh, this claimed spirit seemed to be able to be answering questions and interact with people, which added another further layer of complexity to this case. And soon he would have someone join him during this investigation for that entire year. In the waning days of the summer of 1977, as the strange events of the Hodgson residence in Enfield were rapidly unfolding, Maurice Gross was already on the case. However, he soon realized that the scope and complexity of this phenomena were growing beyond what one man could effectively document and investigate. He understood that a phenomena such, of such magnitude needed to be studied and needed to be studied from multiple perspectives. And for this, he needed a partner. A phone call was made, a request was sent, and soon Guy Lyon Playfair, another member of the Society for pa Psychical Research, was on his way to join Gross in what would become one of the most notorious paranormal investigations in history. Guy Lion Playfair. This dude is a baller. I don't even know his name this was man. Johnny Albion. Cool. Yeah, here's, how you, here's how you type it. It's like, it looks as good as it sounds, honestly. No, I believe you. You don't need to sell me on this. There you go. That's Guy. It's L-Y-O-N. It's not even L-I-O-N. Guy Lion Playfair. I love that it. That dude is a Guilty Gear character. <laughs> one that you would play or one that you would hate playing against I, it's probably a game like a, a character that could kill me without me even understanding what I was looking at but he's also a character that is an intro scene he's carried out by servants and he yeah. like steps down on one of them and like has a cane that he beats you with yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love and it. also he's part turtle right right he has a turtle shell yeah uh, that, Mitch McConnell yeah <laughs> yeah, it's Mitch, Mitch McConnell. McConnell would absolutely get himself carried out by servants that he hits with a cane. M Mr. M Mitch McConnell is not Guy Playfair. No, he's, he's not, not Mitch McConnell. No. Uh, yeah, this guy was another member of the SPR and joined Gross very shortly afterward. Don't shake your head at me. Playfair. We are. I, lo I love it. That CCR, Playfair was baby. no stranger to the supernatural either. Prior to his involvement in the Enfield case, he had spent time in Brazil researching and writing about psychic phenomena, including poltergeist activity. His unique experience and the practical skills he'd honed over the years made him a worthy ally in the investigation that Gross was just about to undertake. And their first meeting in the Hodgson house was a testament to the extraordinary situation that they found themselves about to face together. No sooner had Playfair crossed the threshold of the house than he found himself in the midst of a spectacle of supernatural fucking chaos. Objects were flying through the air. The strange, disembodied voice of an old man echoed through the halls, and a palpable fear hung heavy in the air. I just, like, imagine this dude walks into the house with his hat on. He just, like, opens and just sees, like, a child flying across the room, taking off his hat, calmly and coolly, hanging it up on the hat hanger. 
opens his suitcase as a chair flies at him as he coolly dodges his head just enough. He's ready for this shit. That's the vibe. That's the that's the the Pope's uh, the Pope's, Pope's uh, exorcist. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it sounds so cool, like a thing I would want to witness, right? But is dangerous because there's objects that can hurt you flying around, right? But if they weren't able to hurt you, I'd be like, put me in the center of that. I want to be like Batman when the bats circle him in every damn movie. I want that. <laughs> and in the days and nights that followed. Playfair and Gross established a dedicated partnership between the two of them. They complemented each other, and with Gross's personal motivation and willingness to challenge the entity, balanced by Playfair's methodical approach and healthy skepticism, they stood side by side, facing both the inexplicable phenomena and the ways of criticism and disbelief that would soon be coming their way. Together, they had set out on a tireless pursuit of the truth braving sleepless nights and intense scrutiny, so much so that it bordered on weird privacy intrusion. And it was never anything creepy on the kids or creepy with the family, but they were the dudes that you want investigating your house if you think it's haunted. Sure. Every fucking angle they could think of, every room they were in, they, they essentially started- We're ready to believe you, yeah. They essentially started living in this house part-time. Like, it became their life. And what'd you say, Alex? I was very, very impassionately talking about them. Little Ghostbusters, Ghostbustering. little Ghostbusters yeah. ref. No worries. Okay. Ghostbusters I've seen Ghostbusters goof. though, so that's good. That's cred. Yeah, yeah. Thank I you. Don't. I mean, real talk. Every single person that I know, I expect them to have seen Ghostbusters pretty much if they're the same age as me. Is there another you know movie I mean? you would expect people your age to have seen? Godfather. You know, I haven't seen that though. So. Oh, that's true. Okay. Uh, yeah. That's Air cool. Force One. No. 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 Independence Day. Oh, that's good. Independence Day for sure. Independence Day, Jurassic Park. Yep, seen it, seen it. My expectations are low, though, so. Gladiator, Saving Private Ryan. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. We're, we're, we're good. All, I've got some. We're all millennials. We're right we're, in that zone. It's, it's true. It's true. So, again, t- together, they set out on their tireless pursuit of the truth and spending many nights living in this chaos of, of paranormal. They meticulously documented the strange happening, collected hours of audio that we can all go listen to, and we will hear at some point and visual evidence, interviewed witnesses, and conducted numerous experiments to rule out any possible natural explanations. They were driven by a shared conviction that the Hodgson family was in the grip of something truly inexplicable. And these are the two that are the hero of the story. Not the Warrens, not anybody else. These two are the ones that stuck by the family side the entire time. And so began the remarkable partnership that would last for over a year, transforming the Enfield poltergeist from a local incident into a case that would fascinate and battle the world for decades to come. It was an alliance forged in the crucible of the unexplained, and the two investigators would go into their quest for understanding, very prepared, might I add. Gross and Playfair quickly understood the need for tangible evidence, which I appreciate, I think Jesse would as well. They set up a series of tape recorders, cameras, and other devices all around the house in hopes of capturing the phenomena as they occurred. They also kept a detailed logbook of events, marking down the time, date, nature of the incidents, as well as any potential witnesses that also were around. During this time, yeah, yeah, exactly. During this time at the Enfield house, Gross and Playfair managed to record hours of knocking and sounds and the eerie voice that seemed to possess Janet. This audio evidence provided valuable material for further analysis. Also captured was the famous photo of Janet apparently levitating in her bedroom a contentious piece of evidence that is still debated by skeptics and believers today. And don't you worry, I'm going to get you that picture 
right now. Hell yes, I was about to ask. Uh, and this is, I believe, I've never seen it, but is there, I'm assuming there must be a scene uh, where in the movie, they, she's like floating in some bizarre way. There's an immediate, uh, I think, healthy skepticism that should be had for this picture. All right, let's see. All right, well, okay. I mean, let's just talk about... It looks like someone jumping off a bed is what yeah, it looks like. I mean... Correct. It really, really does. Like, it's not even... Like, I could jump that high off a bed right now, and I'm like a very, very out of shape, rotund man in a Hawaiian shirt. The, um, there's actually a... Oh, where is this damn thing? I'm going to try and find you... This might be something to include in anything we uh, post online, but someone took all the photos and just made a GIF of them. Oh, fantastic. It literally looks in GIF form like someone jumped off a bed. Correct. Uh, that would make sense to me. It literally, to me, just has the vibe of like a straight up punk rock front frontman show, like dive. Like it doesn't look in any way superhuman to me. Right. I agree with you. I fully agree with you. It's not like the greatest photo to use as evidence. It really does look like she's just jumping off the bed. And like, you can look at the bed and it's hard. Like there's no in, I mean, there's an indentation clearly from where she was sitting. It's, it's really, really hard to see. Yeah. I also don't know. Or like, it doesn't look like anything paranormal rather. Yeah. I also don't know who that man is on the wall, but that's a pretty old guy to be on a poster on the wall of like a kid. Is that, is that Wilkinson, Billy Wilkinson, his spear, his body before he died? That's him. That's him That's in the picture, right like The Shining. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is, there's a, another couple. If you Google it, you can see so many other photos as well. There's a lot of them out there. Um, but it's just worth keeping a healthy skepticism when seeing them, because like they said, yeah, it looks like somebody jumping off the bed. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, one of the most dramatic and significant events uh, for them, the two of them, were happened on the nights of the Enfield Poltergeist investigation took place on the evening of December 3rd, 1977. As a chill of winter descended onto Green Street, Maurice, and Gro Maurice Gross and Guy Playfair steeled themselves for another long night, hoping to confront the elusive entity that seemed to, to thrive in darkness. Earlier that day, the entity's activity had been particularly intense, prompting the investigators to anticipate further phenomena in the evening, early evening hours. The events in the house seemed to have a strange rhythm, with periods of relative calm followed by intense episodes of paranormal activity. Gross and Playfair had come to understand this pattern, and they were ready to take advantage of it. As the, as the evening wore on, they started their vigil in earnest. They had strategically placed a series of tape recorders in the children's bedrooms, as the entity seemed to have a particular affinity for these rooms. Playfair manned a camera, ready to capture any visual anomalies. The dude had like a camera at the ready, and every knock, every flicker of light was meticulously noted down in their books. This was a stakeout, albeit one against an enemy they can neither see nor predict. The hours would tick on by with no significant activity. The investigators kept their vigil, though, and their patience was a testament to their dedication. And then, as if answering their unspoken summons, the poltergeist finally made itself known. It began subtly with an almost inaudible whispering sound. The investigators froze, holding their breath as they strained their ears. Then came a soft knock, followed by another and another a strange rhythmic tapping that seemed to come from within the walls themselves. That would be fucking so scary if I heard, like, whispering from nowhere. <laughs> no way. Dude, if that's, yeah, can you imagine middle of the night? Oh my god, bro. What if it's just like, I want a chalupa. I'd get that motherfucker a chalupa. I don't know what you, what do you think about it. I'd be like, Alex, are you here? 
Yeah. She, what are you doing here, like, buddy? Yeah, dude, I'm just in the back. <laughs> I'm pretty baked back here, dude. This fucking sounds is boring, dog. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll go. Do I'll, you want me to order it in, or should I go get it? DoorDash it, bro. Don't forget the sauce. All right, Tell I'll ask it outside. house, dude. I got you. I'll stay back here, bro. Miss you, bro. Okay. I'll be back in the seance. Let me know if that ghost shows up, bro. All right, cool. Luckily, all that was caught on tape because the tape recorders <laughs> were already rolling and picking EVPs. up all of these mm -hmm. eerie sounds. And suddenly, they heard a loud crash from upstairs. They rushed up upstairs into the children's room and they found Janet in a state of distress while a chair lay overturned as if thrown by an unseen hand. The room was much colder, much colder than the rest of the house had been, and a detail that Playfair quickly noted down. They immediately set up additional recording devices in the room, capturing what sounded like a deep, guttural voice emanating from Janet. It was a chilling moment as the voice seemed to respond to their questions, offering disjointed phrases and occasionally unsettling laughter. I'm going to try and get a Janet small piece, but we're going to look into more of this later uh, in next episode. But I, uh, Dean, feel free to edit out the part where I'm bringing it up, obviously. Um, but I want to audio. He's like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got that shit, bro. Let me hear you say my name. Come on. Let me hear you say my name. That's not my name. kind of hear a little girl in there i well the thing is it's coming from her it's it's i can do it you know like is it is it coming from her yeah so this is coming this is this is supposedly emanating from janet the 11 year old girl oh sure 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 but i'm saying like is there video of her doing this or is it just audio uh hang on i don't i doubt there's video i mean it's a seven because i'm i'm very curious yeah. if this is one of those things where it's like the girl's there and the video's on and the dude's yeah. like, if you're in there, fight me. And then the yeah. same dude goes, I am. Right? Yeah, so there's honestly, no, there's, listening to it, it kind of sounds like his voice, uh, but deeper. Sure. It sounds like him. Janet is my name. There are multiple, obviously, the big thing is there are multiple witnesses, but again, they could all be in on it. The question is, again, 
to what point? To what effect? Because they weren't making books. They were still going through it. And again, if you listen to Janet in her adult interviews, she doesn't want to ever. This fucked her up. This didn't. She didn't get rich off this. It ruined her life. Alternative uh, explanation. Janet also knows and is just. That it was all fake. Yeah. Utterly sick over it. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, you know, take it with a grain of salt, but let's, you know, approach this from the idea of this is all happening, you know, within the moment here. Uh, So uh, beyond the laughter throughout that night, Gross and Playfair began to challenge the entity, ask it questions and tried to elicit reactions and their courage and determination, despite the disturbing events, allowed them to gather some of the most compelling evidence of the case. And I specifically say of the case because it's, you know, you know, compelling as far as evidence of a haunting from 1977 can get, I suppose. As dawn broke, the house fell silent again. Tired but undeterred, the investigators finally wrapped up their nocturnal vigil, and it had been a night of high tension and very dramatic encounters. Yet it was just one of many in their relentless quest for answers in the Enfield home. It was through such extraordinary lengths and measures that Gross and Playfair accumulated that large body of evidence, forever marking this as one of the more well-documented cases in paranormal history. As the investigation continued, Gross was keen to bring in additional witnesses and experts to observe the strange happenings. And these included fellow members of the SPR, professionals from various fields, and even magicians, which we'll talk about, uh, who might have been able to spot trickery and sleight of hand. They literally brought in a professional magician. And uh, again, we'll talk about it more next, uh, next episode. And he was, they were like, reproduce this stuff. Show me how to do it. And he saw some shit. And again, we'll talk about it more next episode that really like he was like kind of left wondering. So they, they wasn't. It was like that scene in uh, Casper when that guy comes in and he's like, hey, you got to find somebody else, bro. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, he was dead set on it being a trick. But it, like the the, the, the long, I know we're going to talk about it more, but long story short, the poltergeist fucking hated the magician and did everything it could to torment him because he just didn't believe in any of it. And so the magician got like comp- like focused for an entire night. Um, but the point is like gross and playfair did it bring in witness after witness of varying fields. They didn't just say it's just us. They really went out of their way to bring in other people. Um, some of those people, two of them were, uh, two people by the name of Sonia Rinaldi and Louise Kubler. Some people that playfair had reached out to, uh, out in Brazil. They were two Brazilian parapsychologists who were fascinated by the Enfield poltergeist. And they had read about the case in their local newspapers, and they were convinced that the haunting was real. The one weird thing about the poltergeist is that it didn't settle down from exorcisms or prayers being shouted at it. It more settled down when more spirituality rituals and screaming at it tended to work Honestly, better for some reason. it sounds more like Jeff the Mongoose than it does like a possession. A little bit, yeah. Yes. Whatever, whatever that was. Because Jeff the Mongoose could potentially be poltergeisty yeah or some kind of weird impy foresty creature fey type of head dead on yeah. it's very similar as we learn this thing kind of has a personality of like fucking with people and really I know all your just, secrets yeah and unlike <laughs> jeff though jeff was like almost this chaotic neutral character if this if this is real this is way closer to like neutral evil um they're definitely there to fuck around with the family and like cause them torment and then eventually just leave like jeff did uh again we'll get to that but these two people sonia and louise uh the two brazilian parapsychologists made their way there in 1978 and when they traveled to england to investigate the case firsthand they visited the hodgson house and they witnessed some of the strange phenomena firsthand themselves 
They saw furniture moving, objects levitating, and they even heard disembodied voices from pretty much everywhere. Rinaldi and Kubler were convinced that the haunting was caused by a malevolent spirit, and they tried to communicate with the spirit, but the spirit refused to cooperate. They were trying to like basically figure out it was just taunting them, making fun of them. The best they could figure out is that they thought it was like a spirit that maybe uh, was antagonizing Janet due to a previous life where she Janet was a cruel person and these people what? suffered. Yeah, that's like what they posited. But there was Where no did way they to get really that know. from? I, the, the, dude, they did, they did their own like investigations. I don't, I don't know. I'm not they sure. They figured out what she, what she was like. She was a bitch was in her past guess. life. They weren't 100% sold on it. That was just the, what they were kind of leaning toward. They also tried to perform exorcism, cleansing rituals, but these efforts were totally unsuccessful, and the haunting continued, and the Hodgson family was becoming increasingly desperate. One night, Rinaldi and Kubler were conducting an experiment in the Hodgson house when they were suddenly attacked by the spirit. They were thrown across the room and they were both injured as a result. Rinaldi and Kubler were shaken by the attack, but they were still determined to help Janet. They continued to investigate the case and they eventually came to the conclusion that the spirit was a young girl named Billy, spelt B-I-L-L-I-E, Billy not B-I-L-L-Y, like we th they said it was Billy Wilkinson's. An old man, they're saying it's Billy, a young girl that's haunting them. And she just sounds like that. She's like, I'm a little girl. Well, you know, haunting, it's really hard probably to talk through another body, I can imagine. <laughs> Billy had, had died in this house many years ago, and she was angry and confused. She didn't understand why she was dead, and she just wanted revenge on the people who killed her. Rinaldi and Kubler tried to help Billy to move on, but were totally unsuccessful, and the haunting continued. Um, just so you know, the, the last thing they did offer her is they believed that Janet had a very uh, special gift that she was a medium of some sort, able to channel the other side, one thing, you know. And what they wanted to do was take her back to Brazil and train her to be like a spirit medium. That was their offer to the mother. Like, let her, let, they, like, let us take her She's back to powerful, Brazil. She's powerful, like a yeah, Jedi? Yeah, let us like teach her rituals, yeah. like the stuff that they know, and maybe she can hone this skill and it won't torment her as badly. Um, but the mother was like, hell no. No, not going anywhere. That's so ridiculous. Dude, I would yeah. love to go to fucking Brazil and just be like, Trained a as a spirit medium. I don't know. As a parent, I'd be like, I'm not sure how I feel about a bunch of random dudes taking my sure. daughter to Brazil. Like, mm, well, okay, know. you know, I guess I get that point. I say fuck it. But I mean, I, I hope they would offer the mom to come along. Just let it happen. Say fuck it. If it's like the Jedi Order, they're t they're taking that kid. It's too late. There. Uh, the Brazilian investigators' involvement in the infield post poltergeist is kind of seen as controversial. Some people believe they were genuine paranormal investigators, while others believe that they were just simply charlatans. However, there's no doubt that they were passionate, at least about helping Janet, unlike other charlatans who showed up for two hours and left, and they believe that they were doing the right thing. Their involvement in the case helped to raise awareness of the poltergeist, and it also contributed to the growing body of evidence on paranormal phenomena. The attack on Ronaldi and Kubler was one of the more dramatic events in the Enfield poltergeist case, and it showed that the spirit was not to be fucked around with, and it also showed that the investigators were, at least according to them, putting their lives on the line to help young little Janet. The thing is, it didn't kill anybody, and I'm not sure if they really truly put their lives on the line. I mean, if they truly were lifted and thrown against a wall, that would shake me for sure. But, you know, they, they walked away. I would never fuck with Janet ever again if that shit happened. I would Dude, be in my Janet car. I would drive across state lines to get out of there. Yeah. <laughs> she just gives you a freaking grill, like mad grill, and you're lifted in the air like a freaking Sith and just hurled across the room. I'd be gone, yeah. 
Yeah, it's nuts. Despite the growing, compelling nature of evidence, witnesses uh, of the Enfield case, Gross was still facing significant skepticism and criticism, both from inside and outside his crew of the SPR. Critics suggested that the girls, particularly Janet, were faking the phenomena, possibly for attention. Some even alleged that Gross was being overly credulous and too personally involved in the case, which could cloud his judgment due to the personal reason he was drawn to the SPR in the first place. And with, while these challenges could have disheartened him, they, he moved forward completely undeterred. Even when he caught the girls faking some incidents, which is important because we will cover that next episode, the girls did fake some incidents, and I truly believe there was a part where, remember, they didn't have a father. Their mother was always busy, and he, when he was around... It's not like the first time something like this has ever happened, right? Yeah, like, and when he was around, what we'll learn again next episode, the girls and the kids really liked Gross. Like, he lived in the house with them. He was very nice. He gave them attention. Whenever they said something happened, you know, he listened. He'd write it down. He basically v- validated them. And I could see an 11-year-old, even if these things are truly happening, faking it because they want more, like he's not paying enough attention. Maybe nothing happened too recently and they haven't had enough time with him and they'll fake it. I could literally explain the Salem witch trials. You know what I mean? Yes, yeah, quite literally. It's, yeah, it's human. Yeah. And the, but what's important is that Gross and Playfair both notate and catch them when they're faking it. Like there is a clear, like he can tell and he catches them and he gets them to admit it. They admitted to attempting to deceive him, quote, about 2% of the time. He did not dismiss the case outright. Yeah, he's, about, that's, he's English. About 2% of the time. 2%. About 2%. Okay. 2% I got you. of I got the you. time. <clears throat> uh, but he didn't dismiss the case outright because of it. Rather, he viewed these deceptions as further confirmation of the reality of the phenomenon, because in his opinion, the girls were merely attempting to reproduce the genuine phenomenon to lulls during the lulls in inactivity. Because like, like I was just saying... Well, just like I was saying, if they they liked him around, they truly saw him as like a friend or a father figure. So they wanted to the like act wasn't, out. Yeah, the activity was never constant. It came and it went. And there were times well, where it wasn't happening all the time. And it's during then they, that the girls began faking. Be like, I'm bored. Things. Let's get that guy back. Well, then how does he quantify it at 2%? I imagine he just like was taking an educated guess at the end of it all. That's, that's you know. I mean, that's like negligible so basically all the time and then like one little goof they were like he 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 i don't i think it was more than yeah i think they did it more than one little goof yeah maybe two percent it was real and 98 percent it was them getting attention like that seems more likely if it's a real thing yeah i mean we'll talk more about that in the next episode regardless like i think it's you know the fact that he was at least able to point out or at least figure out when they were uh, faking it some of the time is valuable and prove that he was trying to figure it out in some way. Um, but he seems to have scruples. Like I'll say that gross would even go on to defend the Enfield poltergeist until the last day of his life. He was defending this as an authentic case until he died in 06, 2006, mm-hmm. like up until the day he died, he's like, no, this shit happened. Um, but we'll pick that back up next episode. God damn. Part two of the Enfield poltergeist the deeper investigation, some more witnesses like the magician um, and how it all came to an end. And a little bit, we'll hopefully, uh, we're going to hear a little bit of more uh, adult Janet talk about her experiences uh, when that was all going on. And uh, you'll walk away with, I'm going to be curious what your opinions are of this case when we're all done. Is it weird that this was nostalgic for me, this episode? Yeah, I dig it. Like it felt like an old Chaluminati episode. Is that weird? I hope in a good way. Like, it, it's, <laughs> totally, it's, totally in a good way. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, we haven't done a ghost episode in forever. And the, the reason, I mean, a big reason is there's not a lot of uh, ghost uh, events or haunting cases like this one where there's a lot of information. Like a body we can of evidence, really yeah. get, like, before I didn't mind doing, like, light hauntings, but I much prefer having a body of research to go through and look through because it adds, you know, oh, credibility yeah, to sure. it. And especially for hauntings, there's just not a lot of them. There's not a lot of big ones out there that oh, yeah. have details other than, well, my sister's aunt's best friend was part of it. And it's like, yeah, it doesn't matter. Anyway, we're off to go do a mini-sode over at Chiluminati at Patreon. Try that again at patreon.com slash Chiluminati pod. There it is. Cool. Yeah, we got there. And if you're of the uh, profit tier, you're going to get more video of our dumb faces as I slowly die in 115 degree weather out in Houston. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. It's an extremely important episode for lore and reveals this week. <laughs> All right. I'm excited. Boo. Seriously. Boo. Get ready. <laughs> On that, thank you guys so much for your support. We love you. We'll see you next week with the finale of the Enfield Poltergeist. Goodbye. Bye. Anyway. Me and my wife were sitting outside indulging on our porch one night, enjoying ourselves. I needed to go to the bathroom, so I stepped back inside, and after a few moments, I hear my wife go, Holy shit, get out here! So I quickly dash back outside, and she's looking up at the sky in awe. I look up too, and there's a perfect line of dozen lights traveling across the sky.